We're going to continue our summer psalm series, and today I'll be preaching from Psalm 90. So you can go ahead and turn there if you would like. And while you're doing that, I'm going to tell you a story. So on Christmas Eve in 1895 in Asheville, North Carolina, George Washington Vanderbilt II opened his newly constructed home to his friends. It had taken six years to build, and it was a 178,000-square-foot mansion. It was pretty big. He named it Biltmore. Perhaps you've heard of it or even visited it. My, my wife and I, in 2012, we took a trip to the Great Smoky Mountains. We hiked and visited Gatlinburg and the Smoky Mountains, had a good time. And one day, we traveled across the state line, across the mountain range, into North Carolina. We went to an apple orchard, and we toured this Biltmore mansion. And I'm telling you, if you haven't seen it, it is quite a thing to behold. It has nearly four acres of floor space in the home. It's 250 rooms, 35 bedrooms, 43 bathrooms, 65 fireplaces. The dining table sat 64 people. It had electrical outlets and washing machines long before those were common. It even had an indoor swimming pool before modern filtration, so they just had to drain it every few days and refill it. It had the first private bowling alley. It's three times bigger than the White House. And the grounds around it are just as splendid. In fact, when we went, it was fall, so there was fall color, and there were rows upon rows of chrysanthemums and all the fall colors just striping the grounds. And the grounds themselves were designed by a famous landscape designer who actually designed Central Park in New York City. Adjusted for inflation, it cost over $1 billion, that's billion with a B, billion dollars to build this home for a at the time, a single man before he got married. It's essentially a castle, is what I would say, except I've actually toured castles that are smaller than this home. Well, anyway, you can visit it too. You can go there and you can enjoy many of the hotels and inns on the property and the restaurants, and I think they've built wineries, and there's a lot to do there. There's a lot to enjoy. But there's one thing you can't do if you go there, all right? The one thing you can't do is you cannot stay in the mansion. You cannot go to sleep in this 178,000 square foot home. I guess there's not room enough for you there. Um, In fact, no one stayed in the mansion since the 1950s. And even then, for the last two decades, it was just one divorced guy living in this home alone in a small part of the home. And even before then, the family, who, mind you, were some of the richest people in our country at the time, could only afford the ongoing maintenance, cost, upkeep, and taxes of the home by selling tickets to tourists to come visit their home. I remember as I toured the home with my wife over a decade ago now, thinking to myself, it's it's a strange irony that America's largest private home, which is how it's advertised, isn't really a home at all, and and frankly, wasn't a home very long for for the people that lived in it. Now, it's a testament to craftsmanship, and you you should visit it, but the thing about it is no one goes there and kicks up their feet, lays on the couch, plays with their kids, cooks in the kitchen. No one finds their rest in that building. It's really more a museum than it is a home. Now, you don't have to own a mansion to know that our homes never give us perfect, lasting rest. You know, I I suppose between rain and wind and heat and pests and stuff just wearing out and breaking down, there is always something to do in your home, it seems. Now, I mention this because we, as we look at Psalm 90, we are going to encounter a people, 
the nation of Israel, who are in search of home. In, in fact, they've been in search of home for generations at this time. Let's look at Psalm 90. I'll read the first two verses. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And let's, let's pray. God, please instruct us as we move through this psalm. Pray that we would know you better and praise you more as we come to understand it. And I pray that all of us would be encouraged by your word to find rest in you, God. In your name, amen. Now, this is the only psalm attributed to Moses, and it, it may very well be the oldest psalm in the Bible. We don't know. Many of them are written anonymously, but it's the only one that Moses has written. And it's interesting because, of course, Moses also wrote the first five books of the Bible, notably for, for this psalm's purpose, I would say Genesis, because you're going to see echoes of the, of the Genesis story in this psalm as you move through it. Now, of course, this psalm is for us to hear today. We're, we're one of the audiences intended to hear it. God's word is always for his people to know him and to worship him. But the original audience here was the, the nation of Israel. Moses has written this psalm, and most likely it is after the time of unfaithfulness in the wilderness when they would not enter into the promised land. I'm, I'm sure you remember, but just briefly, you know, they've God's delivered them out of Egypt. They're going to enter into a promised land. He sends 12 spies. Moses sends 12 spies by God's instruction to spy out the land of Canaan. They come back. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, give a faithful report. They say, we can take this land because God will give it to us, frankly, and it's a wonderful land. But the 10 spies, uh, the other 10, say, no, the people are too numerous, too strong. The city's too fortified. We can't begin to take it. We'll be killed. Our children will be killed. What about the children, they say? And they encouraged the entire nation to doubt that God would deliver them, although he had just delivered them out of Egypt. And then sadly, they're punished. God disciplines them. God says, well, now you won't enter the promised land. It says everyone over 20 will not enter. They will spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness and will never enter into the promised land. And the younger generation, the very people that they were most concerned about, their children, he says they will enter. They will conquer, subdue the land, and make it their own by God's provision. So you really have two audiences hearing this psalm originally. They're all Israelites, but you have this older generation who now know they're going to live the rest of their lives wandering just short of this thing they've always wanted, their heart's desire. And, and you have this, this younger generation who, who, who think that, well, everything we want, it's for us. It's, it's there for us, but it's in the future. We have to live really much of our adulthood, much of our life, this hard life in the wilderness with God's provision, but still waiting, I, I suppose in their mind in some sense, for their life to begin, to do what they always felt they were called to do. And so as we go through this psalm, we can reflect on where do we find rest, but also from those two different positions, how do you live in light of that? So this prayer that Moses delivers in this psalm is a reminder about who God is. And as we go through the psalm, we're going to see that God is great, that man is frail and fleeting. And we're going to see how do we live in light of that reality. 
Well, right from the beginning, Moses says, God, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, our true home. And this is the theme that will serve as encouragement and admonition as we move through the psalm. First of all, to that, to that older generation, an encouragement that though they may fall short of the promised land, their real home is God. But to the younger generation, a warning that the promised land, while beautiful and wonderful and, and set aside for them, is, is never going to provide them the lasting peace that they can only have in God. You ever felt that way? You ever felt let down by this world? You know, I grew up a kid in the 90s, so watched a lot of VH1. My parents preferred that to MTV. Uh, and at the time, there was a show that was popular called Behind the Music. Anybody remember that? Anybody watch Behind the Music? If you've never seen it, it's basically the same story every time. All right, Behind the Music was always some retrospective on some famous band or artist, Meatloaf and uh, Rick James and Ozzy Osbourne and a bunch of other people who, it's always the same story. They were talented, they came from nothing, they got famous, they made a lot of money, they got a lot of influence, and then they proceed to squander it all on usually substances and just, we'll say, bad living, all right? And then they usually kind of say that, you know, that stuff didn't satisfy, didn't fill me up. You know, in some ways, the book of Ecclesiastes, if, if you know that story, is the original behind the music. You know, so Solomon says in that book, you know, he's had it all. He says, I've, I've had it all. I'm king of the most significant na uh, nation in the region. People come far and wide to seek my advice and my wisdom. And I did everything I could possibly do. I sought all the knowledge. He had all the women he ever wanted. He had all the wealth he could ever imagine. And in the end, his determination is it did not satisfy. In fact, he says at the beginning of the book that it was vanity, that it was empty, that it was chasing after wind. A hopeless task. And so it's this warning here at the beginning of the psalm to these younger generation who hopes to take the promised land and will that still their real dwelling place is God. Now what kind of dwelling place is God though? Look at verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Meditate on that. God extends from everlasting to everlasting. You know, all of us here have birthdays, right? We all started them someday. Now, the Word teaches us that we will go on forever, either eternally with God or eternally apart from God. But we were made. We began. But God has always been. He always will be, and He has always been. He predates the very mountains this nation was spending wandering around in the wilderness. He formed the mountains. And, and here I think we see an echo of Moses, the, the Genesis author, talking about that creation story. So God has always been from everlasting to everlasting. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. So here we continue to see the greatness of God, but contrasted with how frail, how weak we are. God returns man to dust. We saw that in Genesis, or where Moses tells us that from dust you came to dust you shall return. Did you know that 99% uh, of your body is made up of just six elements? Just oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, 
Carbon, calcium, and phosphorus. That's all you really are. All right, we're all just made out of dirt. And that's not to insult you. Me too, I'm made out of dirt. You know, the point isn't that we're precious because of what we're made out of, right? Our lives are precious because of who we were made by. We were made by a perfect and wonderful creator. What's more, the Bible says we were made in his image. And if you know Christ as your Savior, then it can even be said that you also were bought for a precious price, the blood of Christ, when he died for our sins to save us. But you see, our value, our very lives, only have meaning in relationship to God. Apart from God, there is no value. Moses says that God is sovereign over our lives, or turning men to dust. Also, for a thousand years in his sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Here I think we see Moses the shepherd. Later on in his life, he becomes a shepherd in Midian, a watch in the night. Here he, he has in mind, you know, a group of shepherds out in the wilderness with their flock, taking turns staying up at night to make sure nobody or no predator comes in to harm them or the sheep. Now, maybe you've done a watch. You ever do a road trip, a few of you in the car, and you take turns sleeping, driving all night? I used to do that with friends in college, and I know when it's not your turn to drive, your watch passes quickly because you're asleep. That's how fleeting he's saying time is to God because God is above it. As we look at verses 5 and 6, we say, he says, You sweep them away as with a flood, meaning all mankind. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. Meaning, there's a season in life when we are strong, and that comes to an end at some point. No, I'm sorry, Moses uses this flood imagery, which of course, again, he records in Genesis, the, the story of the flood. Our lives come and go quickly. That's quite a contrast to the God who extends from everlasting to everlasting. So God is eternal, and our lives are short and fleeting, and now we're going to see why. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. For we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. So basically, life is short, and it's our fault. Because of that first sin of Adam and Eve, because of the sin nature we've all been born into now, man is mortal because of our sin nature. He says that we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. Some, some translations there will say we are terrified by his wrath. Now, it, this is, of course occurs throughout the Bible, this idea of fearing the Lord and his wrath. Mind you, this isn't... The, the fear that you might have of a, a villain or someone who intends you harm for ill purposes. This is the terror that a guilty man rightly feels in front of a holy God or a just king or a righteous judge. This, this is an appropriate terror to have from a holy God, all the more so if you don't know the Lord as your Savior. And why is that? Well, look at verse 8. It says, he has set our iniquities before him, his, our secret sins in the light of your presence. So our iniquities are just sins, another word for sin, essentially. But even our secret sins, God sees. 
Now, what does he mean by that? Well, first of all, it means what you probably think, that God sees our whole lives. He, he, he sees our sins, even the sins we would think no one would witness because they only happened in our head or, or in our heart, perhaps, but he witnesses those. But even more than that, did you know that in Leviticus, I think Leviticus 5, there is provision for sacrifice for sin you did not even realize you committed at the time. I think it's why later on Paul can say he's the chief of sinners that God's come to save. Because, you know, even if we were to live our lives by the standards we think God holds for us, by refraining from all the sin we know we shouldn't do, that wouldn't keep us from sin if we also fail to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're called to a holy standard that no one lives up to. And God sees us. And God knows. So God is holy. He's powerful. And he sees our sin. At this point, he's in the psalm, Moses is talking about the nature of man. You know, a few weeks ago, I think Rob preached out of Psalm 139 where it talks about, David says, where can I go to get away from God? How can I flee his presence? And there's nowhere you can go. God sees, sees us and God knows. So life is short. It's because of sin. Well, what kind of life will it be? Look at Psalm 90, of course, verses 9 through 11. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even, by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. So we live maybe 70, 80 years, and that's about right. And you know, that's not very long compared to the earliest inhabitants of earth that God created, that Moses records in the Genesis account. I often wonder what Adam and Eve would think to find out that all of their descendants now live one-tenth of their lifespan. But of course, even a thousand years isn't what God made us for. He made us to live eternally with him. But because of sin, we won't do that in, in, in this life. What kind of life will it be, though? Now, I hardly think Moses needed to remind these people that life is difficult. They're waking up every day in the desert, and we know they don't like it a lot because they complain about it all the time. But here we go. He says, their span is but toil and trouble, and they are soon gone, and we fly away. There's an author, Anne Lamott, and I don't know that I can recommend her books to you, but she was asked an interesting question. She said, what do you think the world will be like 100 years from now? And that's an interesting exercise, right? When you think about what was the world like 100 years ago. Of course, so much has changed, right? Uh, spread of technology and information, our ability to travel physically anywhere or, or, or to spread technology nearly instantly. Medical science has changed so much in 100 years, changing our lives. And, and so the question is asked, what will life be like 100 years? And Ms. Lamott, when asked, says, 100 years? All new people, is what she says in response to that. Isn't that sobering? 100 years from now, all new people. Everyone's gone, which means... a. 100, 120 years from now, every dwelling place, since we're talking about dwelling places, every dwelling place on this planet will be occupied by someone else. Moses is really humbling the people in this prayer he's delivering to them. So at this point, 
The question is asked by the psalmist. Verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? I don't think this is a rhetorical question. If, as Moses is laid out here in the psalm, God is great and mighty and everlasting, he's holy, and he sees our sin and we're judged by it, how do we live in light of that? So that question's asked, and I think as we move into verses 12 and throughout the psalm, we're going we're to see the answer put to us. Let's look at verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. You know, you've probably heard that phrase before, you know, live like you're dying. There's a lot that's been said about that. Here Moses is saying there is wisdom to be had by recognizing our fleeting nature, that life is short. Specifically for the Israelites, he wants them to, to use their time wisely, to use the time that God has given them wisely. Look at verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Now, when you read return, O Lord, your first inclination might be, in light of the New Testament, Jesus, please return, please come back. And of course, we pray for that. We, we long for that, and we know it will come. But I don't think that's what he means when he says return. He's saying return as in relent. God, please change. Please stop punishing us or disciplining us for our, our sin. Please have mercy on us. And God is a merciful God, so it's, it's an appropriate prayer to pray. And then he says, how long? You know, it's said many times throughout the Psalms. David says it often. Do, do you ever say that? I know I say that sometimes in my own prayers to God. God, how long am I going to go through this difficult season in my life? How long until you answer this prayer. I can't help but think as I look out at a congregation of people that I'm sure all of us have lived life with unanswered prayers, with things that God has either said no to or at least he hasn't said yes yet to them. And we wonder, how long must we live with a broken relationship in our life or, or longing for physical healing for ourselves or someone we love with financial instability or stress. How long, God? How long? He says, have pity on your servants. You know, this is a, a personal prayer, too, for Moses. I want us for a moment to consider the life of Moses. You probably know the life of Moses a little bit. Plenty of stories about his life. But think about it. Moses was born in strange times. A little Hebrew boy born to Hebrew slave parents at a time when the Pharaoh was killing all the boys. So his parents hid him away for as long as they could, but they couldn't any longer. It's, I think it's hard to hide a screaming baby, right? So at some point, they put him in a basket, and they sent him down a river. And in God's providence and God's sovereignty, he's actually adopted by the very family that would have destroyed him. He's adopted by the daughter of the Pharaoh, Right? And then in, in a mercy of sorts, he, he's able to be breastfed and, and nursed by his own mother because his big sister's watching over him, right? And that happens till he's weaned, the Bible says, which we, we understand in that culture at that time, 
somewhere in age, between ages two and four might have been what it would be. So consider that. You know, our, our two and four-year-olds are over here in the church. You know, he got to live with his mommy and daddy until he was two to four years old, and then he was taken away. I can only imagine what kind of trauma that would be for him. But at least he gets to go live in the palaces of the Pharaoh, right? I mean, surely that's good. That's better than being a slave, you would think, like all of his Hebrew brethren, brethren who are growing up slaves. He gets to grow up with all the privileges of the royal family, essentially. He would have all the education, all the wealth, all the opportunity. He wouldn't have to know hard labor. You would think that he would find rest in that then. But, but that's not what we see. In fact, what we see is at age 40, after he's lived most of his youth, he, he sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew slave. So he kills him. He kills the Egyptian. And he hides the body. I, I, we don't know, but we, we think maybe he was hoping to then be received by these Hebrew people. He's one of them. He identifies with them. But then not long after that, he encounters two more Hebrew slaves arguing with each other, and he tries to intervene, and they say, who are you? You're going to kill us too? We don't want anything to do with you. We know about the Egyptian. And he realizes in that moment his secret sin has been known. So he runs away and begins another strange chapter in his life. Moses runs off to Midian, where now he's not being raised by his biological family. He's not being raised by his adoptive, not raised, but he's not with his adoptive family. He's with a new foreign people that he doesn't know with different cultures and traditions. He's in Midian. And now life's harder. Now he's a shepherd. Now he's working in the dirt, taking care of sheep and flocks. And... But he makes a life for himself. He gets married. He has children. So you would think maybe he's found belonging there. But I don't know that he did. Let's look at what he named his first son. He names him Gershom, which the Bible tells us means, he names him Gershom, the word meaning sojourner or traveler. Moses says, because I have been a sojourner in foreign lands. So clearly there's still some heart's desire for him to have belonged, and he feels out of place, which is, I guess, easy to believe. I, I imagine that the Midianite shepherds did not receive the Egyptian city boy easily. And then he's 80 years old. His life's, you would think, mostly spent and he has this amazing encounter with God at the burning bush. And then God uses him to deliver his people out of Egypt. And you would think finally he'll be reunited with his people where he would really belong. But we see he's not received there easily as well. But still God uses him. They're delivered out of Egypt. They're going to go into the promised land. And before they can, the people are unfaithful and unwilling to enter. So at first Moses isn't able to enter because of the people's unfaithfulness. He must feel like he came so close to really belonging somewhere and doesn't make it. And then something truly terrible happens. Uh, you may remember this account in, in, in Numbers. Moses and Aaron are charged to bring water from the rock for a thirsty people in the wilderness. And he does it in a manner that the Bible says does not uphold God as holy in the eyes of the people. So God punishes him. And God says, now, Moses, you will never enter the promised land. What, what that must have been like for Moses. I can just imagine him saying, God, no, not that. Don't you know, God, my whole life I've been this man out of place? You know, you could almost see Moses arguing, well, God, haven't I served you well? <laughs> Aren't I the one you had to bring the Ten Commandments down the mountain? God, please do not discipline me in this way. Please do not do this. And we know he begged because if we look at Deuteronomy 3, we'll see what 
He asked of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. It says, And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. Verse 26, but the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. So God says no. And once again, can't help but think that must have struck that same nerve that maybe had always bothered Moses. So when he says in verse 13 of the psalm, how long, Lord, have pity on your servants? I'm sure he relates to any of us who, who say that. God, how long? You know, it's hard enough to suffer the, all the trials and, and difficulties of a broken world. I think it's especially harder when you know the consequences are of your own making. That's what Moses might be saying here. So how do we live? How do we live then as people who know that God is everlasting and that our real dwelling place is with him and not with all the good things of this world that we might be tempted to idolize? Let's look at verses 14 through 17. 14 through 17 are going to be a prayer for the here and now. You know, up until now, the scope has been bigger. It's been grander about the nature of God, the sinful nature of man, our response to God. But how do we live day to day then? If our, if our real hope is in him, if, if we're told that the things of this world will not satisfy, then how do we live? Verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is a prayer for the here and now. He's saying, God, he's praying. May may what we do daily honor you. You know, the nation of Israel will eventually and soon be entering into a promised land, and they'll be in the business of nation building. They'll be building cities, building walls, creating families, getting married, and having children, and giving their children away in marriage, and doing all the things that people do. But the prayer here is that we never mistake all the many good things God has made as a substitute for his lasting presence. May we enjoy those things, and may God himself establish the work of our hands. May the very things we do, may those still be guided by God. You know, as believers in Christ, if we know Christ as our Savior, we should be comforted to know then that God is our dwelling place. Like Moses, we can say, how long? How long, God, do we have to wait? You know, Moses says, perhaps through tears, God is my dwelling place. God is my dwelling place. And maybe he's just reminding himself. You know, maybe he's saying, 
you know, it's not that if I could have just stayed with my parents, then I would have known peace. Or if I could have found a way to fit in in Pharaoh's home, I, I had it pretty good there. Why did I not just fit in? Why, why did I kill that man? He's not saying that either. And, he, and he's not saying that I, I should have learned to be at home in Midian. And he's not even saying if I had only refrained from sin then in, the, in this physical promised land, the land of Canaan, there I would have known the peace and, and rest I've always wanted to know. No, he's saying, apart from all of that, God is his dwelling place. That is where he really belongs. I'm sure all of us have known what it's like to, to be disappointed by this world. This is how we're called to live then. We're freed from having to worship this world or idolize any of the good things God has made. We're free to enjoy them for what they are, temporary and fleeting. But when they let us down, we don't have to be broken. So on our best days, when we have everything we could ever want, we're to be reminded that those things are fleeting and that God is our real home. And on the worst days, when we are broken, when we feel like nothing is going our way, when we feel like God has not answered our prayers, what do we do then? We can be comforted. I like what C.S. Lewis says. He says that, uh, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Consider for a moment the final moments of Moses' life, though. Do you remember? So God leads him up this mountain, Mount Nebo, as a mercy before, you know, his big brother Aaron's died, Miriam's passed away, and now Josh was about to take charge of the people and lead them into the promised land. But before that, God leads Moses up a mountain and lets him look out. And they say on a clear day still on Mount Nebo in the, prom, in the uh, Holy Land, you can look out and see much of the promised land, is what I understand. And he looks out and he can see the good land that God's going to give his people. And then, even though the Bible says Moses' eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated, meaning he was still a strong, strapping 120-year-old man, he dies. I think it's implied God takes him and he buries him and we don't know where. And you're tempted for a moment to think he came so close. He came so close to this thing that he always wanted and didn't reach it. And his prayer was not answered in the way he would have had God answer his prayer. But that's not the end of the story, is it? We all know that the Bible says to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. So Moses died short of the land of Canaan to enter immediately into the presence of his God, our God, who made him and knows him sent his son to die for him, where he always really belonged, where he would really belong, where he would be forever, an everlasting, secure dwelling place. And that's our story too. If you know Christ as your Savior, then we are freed from worshiping the things of this world. We are, we are warned against trusting these things because they fail us, but we're free to enjoy them for what they are. But even in the hardest moments, we are reminded what God has to say in Revelation. And I'll finish with this. In Revelation, at the very end, Apostle John 
is describing what he hears. And he says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. God will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's our real home. That's where we're going. And it's an everlasting and secure home. I'll close this in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. God, we are humbled by your greatness. And we marvel at your love and your grace for sinners. I pray, God, that we would learn to find rest in you, to know that you're the only source of lasting rest. I pray for the congregation before me, God, to know the peace of Christ. In your name, amen. Now, if you'd rise, I'd like to say a benediction. Moses wrote this one. (laughs) The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Thank you.